Standard Issue for all women. Hello there and welcome to episode 37 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan. Number of mushroom brushes my mum has bought me, seven. Number of times I've brushed a mushroom, zero. Sorry, what? What's a mushroom brush? It's a special little brush, like a nail brush, but for, yeah. specifically for mushrooms. Because you're not supposed to, because you're, you're not supposed to wash them. You're not yeah. supposed to wash them. You're supposed to brush the dirt off. But I did not know that such a thing existed. Well, I've got why, loads. Why, why does she keep <laughs> Can I have one? Yeah. She just really likes them. Did she get it from the Better Work catalogue? I don't know, Jen. Do you want my, me to ask her? My mind has been blown. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I'll sleep when I'm dead. Which might actually be soon if I don't get some fucking sleep. Oh, she's so tired. Oh, dear. I'm Jen Offord, and yesterday I bought a beret. And? And <laughs> and two baguettes, <clears throat> a bottle of Beaujolais, and a chocolate gateau, so that I could go to a Eurovision party as a cultural stereotype. I shit you not, but Jen is wearing a striped T-shirt. Actually. Oh, a striped dress. <laughs> She's gone full. Yeah. Full. Later on, I chat to our music guru, Liz Buckley, about the rip-roaring talent that is Viv Albertine. She of the slits, and now not one, but two books. Mick and I chat to Caroline Flint, MP, about alcohol and being the child of an alcoholic. And I talk to author Kit Duval about her book, The Trick to Time, and getting more working-class voices in writing. And I do Disney's The Aristocats. Jenny could put your uh, beret on for that. Oh, man. should have brought it. But first, Berlusconi, Polanski and Farage. For the love of shit, it is time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we rail against the patriarchy like we're Northern Labour MPs talking about Brexit. Indeed. If the world isn't being led by enough idiots for you yet... The news that former Italian leader and sentient waxwork Silvio Berlusconi has been cleared to run for office again might be music to your ears. But I'm not sure who else would welcome it. The inexplicably sexually available 81-year-old had received a six-year ban from seeking office after being convicted of tax fraud in 2013. Something he didn't serve time in prison for because... Well, I'm not sure, to be honest. Reasons. Probably the same reasons the judge decided he'd just end the ban early. If you're not aware of what a mouldering cock-end Bunga Bunga Berlusconi is, there's really not time to get into it here. Perhaps it would be suffice to say that the least worst thing he did during his inglorious tenure was tell Italian earthquake victims to look upon their homelessness as a camping trip. And it's not as if Italy hasn't got enough problems. It faces, at the time of recording this, the prospect of a snap election if, more than two months after a general election, Right-wing The League Party can't make significant steps towards forming a government with Five Star, which is a 21st century populist movement describing itself as neither left nor right, but anti-establishment and not the Romford 80s five-piece, sadly. I once did a dance routine to a five-star tune and I had to leapfrog over a girl who was twice my size. Incredible scenes. (laughs) Were they from Romford? I mean, they're like a little bit before my time, ladies. Um, but um, hello, she's gone all French. I'm Conti. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know. ITV soap Coronation Street made national headlines last week as it began airing a new storyline around the suicide of one of its central characters, Aidan Connor. It was announced the week before that the scenes would air, and what marks this particular storyline as different to so many others around the subject portrayed in soap operas was that this would not be an attempted suicide, discovered in time and ultimately happily resolved. 
Instead, the soaps producers wanted to show the devastating impact of a suicide on a family and community. And I say hats off to them. 84 men take their own lives every week in Britain, with suicide remaining by far the biggest killer of men under the age of 50. Another stark reminder that gender inequality is shit for everyone. It's good that there's a conversation happening, but there is still so much talking to be done. This week we lost Scott Hutchison, frontman of Frightened Rabbit and a personal hero of mine. He was 36. His brilliant, raw, heart-swelling music has got me through more dark patches than I want to recall. Devastatingly, it couldn't save him. Clearly there are no gradations of sad in shattering situations as this, but Hutchison was doing everything you're supposed to. He was candid about his struggles with depression, talking about everything from heartache to thoughts of suicide in his lyrics, wearing his heart and his vulnerability on his sleeve and therefore enabling others to realise that our brain being a prick doesn't mean we're on our own. I think I'll save suicide for another day, he sings on Floating in the Fourth. No one is immune. Mental health is a fucker, but it doesn't need to be a killer. Talk to people, people. The Samaritans, calm, a counsellor, your mates. You are not on your own. In more sad news, it was announced on Sunday that former Culture Secretary and Labour stalwart Tessa Jowell has died aged 70. Jowell, who was instrumental in bringing the Olympics to London in 2012. Oh, remember 2012, the halcyon days. (laughs) Jowell had a brain tumour and committed the last year of her life to campaigning for better treatment for those with cancer and reading Seamus Heaney, which is as good a use of anyone's final days as I can think of. Agreed. But what a loss. Paedophile Roman Polanski is not a happy bunny at the moment. Can I get a big aww? No, of course not, because the French-Polish director, currently throwing his toys out of the pram because the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, a.k.a. the Oscars, has expelled him in light of his statutory rape of a 13-year-old, so he can shit right off. You heard me, Polanski. Do one. And stop listening to this podcast. You're not welcome. In an interview with Newsweek Polska, Polanski dismissed the Me Too movement as, quote, total hypocrisy, comparing it to 16th century massacres of Protestant Christians in France. Well, he would, wouldn't he, the massive jizz ferret? Colour of surprise that a man convicted of sexual assault isn't totes on board with a global movement of women speaking out about sexual assault. Sorry, I said global movement. I meant mass hysteria, didn't I, Roman doll? No, I fucking didn't. Anyway, Polanski isn't just appealing the Academy's decision, he's freaking suing them for not allowing him to defend himself. Something you'd think he'd be used to, given he fled the US before he could be sentenced for the crime he admitted to and remains a fugitive for. Yeah, good luck, pal. I just, you know, he's he's a bit biased, isn't he? Let's face it. He's a bit biased. Just a tad. And uh, on that subject, his mind's telling him no... R&B artist and alleged sexual offender Robert R. Kelly had some less sultry words for Spotify this week after the music streaming service dropped him from their curated playlists. Actually, that's a lie. They were still quite sultry. The She's Got That Vibe singer, a man rumoured to have married now-deceased singer Aaliyah when she was 15 and he was 27, has been accused and subsequently acquitted of sex with an underage girl in 2002 more recently was rumoured to be holding women in an abusive sex cult. And they're not the only lawsuits filed against him. Incurred the wrath of the Time's Up Women of Colour movement this year, who called for a boycott of his music. Some might say that dropping him from playlists is, well, not that drastic. 
But Kelly, who has an estimated net worth of £114 million, according to The Sun, was quick to point out he's never actually been found guilty of any wrongdoings. In a statement released last week, Kelly said his songs were about love and passion for women, as demonstrated, for example, by 1992's Honey Love, Let's Go to the Mall, Baby, I'll Pick You Up Around Noon, Lady, or She Was Taking Flights Back and Forth, I Would Pick Her Up at the Airport, from the 2007 seminal classic Same Girl. Kelly added that while he had been dropped, Spotify continued to promote songs that were violent and anti-women in nature. Spotify responded to criticisms thus, We don't censor content because of an artist's or creator's behaviour, but we want our editorial decisions, what we choose to programme, to reflect our values. Right, anyone else taking their copy of ours 2012? Remember that? 2012 autobiography <laughs> Solar Coaster. days. <laughs> yeah, it produces autobiography Solar Coaster. Anyone else taking it to the charity shop? No, just me then. Some classics just have to stay in your bookcase, yeah. Jen. All that stuff in those lyrics. Yeah. I mean, largely, you could replace R. Kelly as a boyfriend with just an Uber. <laughs> They're quite good at sexual assault as well, aren't they? <laughs> allegedly, guys. Allegedly. allegedly. What self-important weasel Nigel Farage been up to? I hear absolutely nobody ask. <laughs> well, he started a petition calling for Donald Trump to receive a Nobel Prize. For peace. You heard me. Sometimes I think it would just be easier for Farage to post a picture of himself stroking his cock while reading Racism for Dummies. But there you have it. Farage claims that not nominating Trump for the world-famous award would irrevocably damage its reputation, which seems to be the precise opposite of what everybody else, and indeed good old-fashioned common sense, suggests. Farage's petition comes because of recent progress in North Korea, it not blowing up the world and all that, as opposed to Trump setting fire to the Iran deal, because, oh, actually, I'm not even going to try to fathom how Farage's mind works because I actually seriously suspect it doesn't. I think the only reason that he hasn't posted a picture of him stroking his cock while reading Racism for Dummies is because he can't multitask. Possibly. Because that is three things he's got to do. He's got to stroke his cock, read, or at least look like he's reading, and take a photo. Well, also, because he'd also need to be standing up having his Christmas dinner while watching the Queen's Speech on a really small, portable television on a really badly that, put up shelf. Which that I heard he best, does every Tuesday. <laughs> that is the best photo I've ever seen. Also because his pint glass... It's one of those IKEA glasses. That's foreign glasses coming over here, <laughs> making our glasses work. Yeah, yeah. It's in a, it's in a, one of those like standard IKEA glasses, and it just smacks of a can of Bombardier. <laughs> Anyone fancy some good news? Oh God, yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> Loads of you have listened to our two-part docupod on repealing the Eighth Amendment. Thanks. This is so important. It's a fight for women's rights and lives happening just across the Irish Sea. Let's keep talking. Please tell people to give it a listen and get involved. Shout about being together for yes. Donate a fiver or so to Abortion Support Network. Thanks. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where all the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the single... Can you please stop being such a burden on the state? Mm. Come on now. Can Joey Kato, an MP from Japan's governing Liberal Democratic Party, has been accused of sexism after he said young Japanese women should have children or face being a burden on the state. Kato didn't have much chat on whether single men are a similar burden because, of course, he didn't. 
Cato has since reluctantly retracted the statement, but said that when he gives wedding speeches, he tells the bride and bridegroom to produce at least three children. The 72-year-old father of six also said that if he meets a woman who doesn't intend to marry, he tells her she'll end up in a care home paid for by taxes from other people's children. Back off, everyone else. I'm not even getting hitched and I booked him to speak. He sounds a right riot and I bet he goes full crazy legs on the dance floor. Seriously now, for all the being able to do what the fuck you like and dancing with the cat, single women get a pretty shit deal when it comes to, well, um, life. It's really hard to get a mortgage. Colleagues quite often expect you to take the shit shifts because what's she got to go home for? And people do tend to pity you incorrectly. And all of those people can join KO in a big box I've marked fuck off to space. Also, it's really expensive buying food when you're single there. There's this, there are, and as someone who has spent more than half their life, well, actually, probably if you consider when I was a child, I didn't have too many boyfriends either. The vast majority of my life as a single person, I pay way more council tax sort of per head than most people do. Yes, yeah. I don't same. take as half much, yeah. uh, half as much back in that there's only me and I contribute loads. I don't exist. I always used to say I only smoked. Because then there was something to look forward to with budget day. There was like, oh, suddenly I'm a bit relevant. I fall into a box. I'm not a hardworking family. I'm not a pensioner. I'm not a student. I'm not all of these other things. But I do smoke. So I could actually say, oh, hey, someone's noticed I fucking exist. I've started setting fires in my own house just to make the most of paying three quarters of the council tax. Do you know what's also quite interesting? There's actually a problem in Japan. It's like a uniquely Japanese phenomena. And I... I'm sure people will tweet me if I say this incorrectly. I believe it's called the Yukukamori. I think that might be a noodle. (laughs) There's this thing that happens in Japan where basically young men just shut down and cut off from the world and they just go and live in their rooms. And sometimes it goes on for a period and sometimes it goes on forever and they never come out. Now, presumably, in the old days, you possibly needed uh, your mother or someone to enable you to exist like that. But now I think perhaps the internet, you could possibly exist like that. Um, and just order everything in. Now, that seems to me a better use of investment of sorting that problem out than the fact that some Japanese people choose not to get married in or fairness, some Japanese women choose not to get married. In Japan, they also have a annual festival called basically the Penis Festival or something like that. That's not actually what it's called, where they celebrate... We have one of those. It's in Leeds and Reading. <laughs> right, so this festival, it's about this myth about this woman who has, like, a demon in her in her vag, and when men try to uh, do the sexy time with her, it bites off their dicks, and then basically... Oh, vagina, vagina dentata. Yeah. and then they get this oh, big dentata, metal, sorry. and then basically someone rapes her with a metal cock, and then she's fixed, because it, like, smashes the demon's teeth in, and they celebrate this every year. Wow. Yeah. Apparently, though, briefly, going back to Japan, apparently Japanese people are going off sex. There are a lot of people in their 20s in Japan who've never had sex and claim they never want to. There's um, record numbers of, well, record lows, I believe, in this country of teenage pregnancy because millennials are not... It's Apparently it's about pornography. It's uh, because they can't do it anymore because pornography is so dodgy that um, no one can have normal sex anymore. Oh, I thought anymore. it was because they'd stop drinking and that's how you have sex. Yeah, that could be something to do yeah, with it. Maybe anyway, there was a dart here into our souls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hi there. I am joined by our music guru, Liz Buckley. Hey, Liz. 
Hello then, Mickey. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? I'm good, yes. Lovely sunny day to be inside with microphones in the dark. In a windowless room. (laughs) We're here on Bank Holiday Monday, the hottest day of the year, and it was hotter than Satan's balls. It was awful. (laughs) Liz has come to talk to us about Viv Albertine. She of the slits, and now not one, but two books. Yes, Faber author extraordinaire. And also there's a Slits film just come out as well. Oh, that's interesting. Here to be heard. Very good it is too. But yes, we'll mainly stick to the book, but all of these things will be incorporated. Excellent. So I have read Viv's first book, which is her memoir, Close, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys. I haven't got a stutter. That is what it's <laughs> called. And I it's it what her mum used to say to her. It was all she thought about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these um, are your only topics of conversation. But her new one, I, I, what's it called? What's it about? Well, there is a spoiler involved with the title, so it's impossible to avoid, really. But it's called To Throw Away Unopened. And the entire book revolves around the demise of her parents, really. So whilst the first book is a memoir about punk and her subsequent marriage and being a mum and being unwell and stuff like that, this picks up with her mother being unwell. So the first book is sort of the book of her life and the second book, if you like, is the book of her mother's death, really. To throw away unopened refers to a bag that she finds in her mother's wardrobe marked as such. (laughs) And it sort of goes from there. Like, what would you do? Would you throw it away unopened or would you look at all your mother's papers? And she finds similar in her estranged father's wardrobe and what she finds... She does open them. Yeah. <laughs> really Thank short you, book. So I just put them straight in the bin. <laughs> Wouldn't want to be disrespectful <laughs> the end. <laughs> she said that her mum had shredded quite a lot of her paperwork, so she knew she didn't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what she finds it basically is both of her parents' divorce diaries. So they were encouraged at the time when they were splitting up to write a diary of what it was like day-to-day being together to explain why they wanted to split up. So it was both of their presentation to a course of law as to what was wrong with their marriage from their own point of view. So she's sort of relearning her own history and sort of rediscovering her mother as a person she didn't know that side to and things about her parents' marriage she wasn't privy to and how hindsight helps you get to know someone in a more rounded way, not necessarily as a mother but as a wife, as an unhappy woman and how that impacted on her own upbringing. So, yeah, that is where we sort of begin to throw away unopened. (laughs) Is it a sort of follow-up to her memoir, but with different source material? In a way, it definitely refers back to the first book in lots of ways, because both of her parents are in that, and she has very strong opinions on it. She's really close to her mother in the first book. And I would say in a different way in the second one, there's a hell of a lot more understanding of where her mother's coming from, but there's also a lot more anger. So whilst her mother is a very supporting angry kind of for, for, for the sake of good in the first book I mean her mum goes to see the slits and you know <laughs> she's at the punk gigs she also learns that a lot of her fire and her anger comes from her mother and she sort of starts to see her as a bit of a Miss Havisham and she's like you know because she's so unhappy in her marriage that she sort of sees her as this despiser of relationships and of love and she's like is this why I am like I am because my mother was you know an angry married spinster <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, a lot of her life, she was obviously separated from her father. They were estranged for a good long time. But she sort of rehashes over things and even things in the first book. You know, so the first book has stories about her dad hitting her with a belt. And, you know, that's given as fact because that's how Viv remembers it. 
And in the second book, she actually goes back over the diaries where he sort of said, you know, I would never lay a hand on my kids and all this sort of thing. And she's like, did I make that up? Is that my own memory of it that I've somehow invented? And then she stumbles on uh, childcare diaries where they did actually get taken to people to verify what happened to them. And she's like, no, that did actually happen. So She was lying to himself. Yeah, and also lying to the authorities as well because these are the diaries where they present the people they want to be and how they want to be seen. So it's very interesting. It's like a great historical document for what it was like to get divorced at that time. Wow. Both of Viv's books cover sort of what it's like to be female during the times that her mother and her and her daughter are alive. It's sort of three generations of women is what's covered in the second book. I went to Viv's book launch for this second book the other day and she was sort of saying that people look back at the 60s and 70s and they remember the style and you know they look at the outfits and they look at the music and they think it was a lot cooler than it was because actually women had the same rights as they did in the 1940s I mean you couldn't get a mortgage if you're a single woman you couldn't run the marathon until 1967 Viv actually um it's like uh tangent here but after the slit she became an aerobics instructor I don't know if you know that she was the second aerobics instructor at the pineapple dance studio amazing but she sort of said whilst you know whilst I'm chuckling about that she said that building muscle felt like a rebellious act because you know that you weren't really allowed to run if you're a woman so you know looking strong wasn't something that women were supposed to aspire to being athletic it felt like rebellion she is a rebel, let's put that out there. For anyone who hasn't heard of Viv Albertine or have been living under a bridge so don't know who the Slits are, they were the first all-female punk band. Is that correct? Um, well, actually, everyone talks about them as they, they were all-female. Budgie was their drummer. <laughs> and an actual Budgie. <laughs> <laughs> Budgie, who later, obviously, is in the Banshees. He's the drummer on Cuts. Originally, it was Palmolive later of the raincoats but you know there, there were guys in the slits it's just that the, they shared an ethos and Budgie's not on the cover of their first album or anything they're coming from a punk aesthetic where everyone's working towards the same thing but it, it was a girl team so Budgie was just there because he's their friend and he's helping them out but it's about the women really I mean she talks about they would walk down the street in a line like the monkeys in a foursome they're a team I mean Viv is not really a violent person but punk was a very violent time and she talks about things like Palm Olive who's the original drummer getting her purse nicked when they're in a squat and Viv threatens everyone with a hammer because you know that's her girl and you know that's not going to happen yeah like a crew yeah exactly I mean it, it was really quite it's hard to put in current terms how much of a statement it was just looking the way they did. I mean, Viv was a fashion student, so she used to go out always barefoot, never wore shoes. So she's thumping around Camden with <laughs> nothing on her feet. But she would do stuff like wear a used tampon over her ear as an earring and things like that. And, you know, it was uh, it was not aggressive, I wouldn't say, but it was certainly a, a commitment in the way that she looked. You know, that had repercussions, Ari. Ari Up, who was the singer in The Slit, she got stabbed twice when uh, they were just pounding about the streets. And Ari was 14 at the time. So she was really young. Yeah, yeah, so not even old enough to actually be in venues. She got stabbed in the arse, actually, one time. The guy was so cowardly, he stabbed her as she was walking off. And Tessa, who's a bass player in The Slit, actually wore the jeans Ari was wearing that night on stage the next day with the big slit in the arse. <laughs> so that's how hardcore they were, you know? They kind of used this stuff. Raw and fearless, and I think that comes across in certainly the book that I've read of, of Viv's. 
and there are no punches pulled. She doesn't hold back. Honesty is a massive thing, June, but I, fearless is a difficult one because she's actually enormously underconfident. And I found this really surprising because, you know, these are the women who were on the front cover of Cut wearing just loincloths and covered in mud with their tits out, you know. Yeah. She, but she talks an awful lot about anxiety and underconfidence. I mean, she even says, I didn't put too much mud on my face because I wanted to look nice, you know. Yeah, so I, that is something that's absolutely stuck with me from reading that, yeah. There, there was definitely a, a, a whole mix of things as there would because you know she's a rounded human person so she'll talk about being so scared of going on stage that her legs literally buckle having diarrhea every single night of the tour yet she'll piss in someone's shoe in the corridor <laughs> there's, a, there's a hell of a lot of woman, part cat. <laughs> in the second book it dots around quite a lot she talks about her mum dying in very very small bursts because I think this is very true if uh, anyone who's suffered from grief will relate to this way you can't actually talk about it for huge long periods of time because it's too upsetting. So she'll have sort of like a paragraph here and a sentence here and it's her sort of needing to go back to it to work through it but not able to consistently stick with the topic because she needs the break, you know. So she, she yeah, has you little sort of... being sucked into it Yeah, again. yeah. So she doesn't allow herself to sort of wallow but there are these sort of like little vignettes where she's sort of like, and this is where I was at this particular moment and it'll sort of inform where she's at. But there's also loads of quotations that all relate to her confidence. So she's got lots of female authors dotted throughout and artists and so a few quotes that relate to this that are stuck with me. Like she's got George Eliot saying, every limit is a beginning as well as an ending. And Georgia O'Keefe, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life, but I've never let it keep me doing a single thing I wanted to do. There's loads of things along these lines. Like Viv herself said on her gravestone, she wants, she was scared, but she did it anyway. <laughs> That's kind of what we have to do, though, yeah. I think. Particularly going back to when they started out as the slits. One, they were really young. Obviously, Ari was super young but they were still young women who hadn't necessarily found their feet in the world yet being thrust onto a stage and into a scene that was very male dominated and Mm. very aggressive so it is that be frightened but you've got to sort of you can't beat them join them and just join in yeah 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 I mean she does say that you know that she never even wore high heels if she was out with Sid Vicious or whatever because they had to run all the time I became very fond of Sid Vicious reading her first book. I've never read anything to do with punk before where he wasn't a cartoon character. Mm. And obviously that's how he set himself out of it. But the way she writes about him is absolutely fantastic because... yeah, she made me fond of him. She sort of talks about... She she was going out with Mick Jones, I don't know if you remember. They met uh, Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten on King's Road when Mick and Viv were a couple. Viv, at this point, has decided she wants to be a guitarist, never picked up a guitar before in her life, but she just feels that is her calling. And Mick's into it. He's like, yeah, great, I've got a girlfriend that's going to play the guitar. I like that. But Sid goes, let's be in a band then. You know, it hasn't occurred to Mick to invite her into a band and that's her boyfriend it's like cool you want to be a guitarist you know but Sid's actually gone brilliant let's be in a band together she doesn't even know his name but she's so taken with the fact that he's willing to do that and it's no stumbling block that you know there's no one else around her that would have even considered her so he had a sort of different way of thinking that I found rather charming when I read let's call it closed music boys (laughs) I'll just keep saying it I was fond of Sid as well, and obviously he's he's problematic for other reasons. And like you say, he's quite often presented as quite cartoonish. 
But to me, he encapsulates the actual punk ethos. He didn't have boundaries. Mm. So he wouldn't have thought twice about going, all right, let's do this. Yeah, She's yeah. never picked up a guitar, but let's let's do a, let's yeah. be in a band. He, he had far more reservations about joining Sex Pistols because it was something he hadn't created. He was like, I'm joining mm. something that is someone else's, whereas at least if I join a band with Viv, we're doing it together. So they were in the Flowers of Romance before she was in the Slits, and that was their band. And they wrote together, and he helped teach her, and he was very interested in her songs. And he tested loads of her boundaries. So that I found kind of funny as well because he realised she had this sort of uptight side and very embarrassed side so he would do stuff like go right today we're going to be handcuffed to get together (laughs) and then she'd not drink because she didn't want to go to the toilet in front of her (laughs) it was all so unpunk it was kind of brilliant so I found all that sort of stuff really charming he had a really beautiful handwriting with little circles above the eyes and he was really ashamed of being intelligent and he didn't want people to know that so that brought out a side of him that I found rather thrilling actually that you know he's, he's a real boy who was a bit lost actually yeah I think she definitely paints that picture of him she captures people very very well and and she captures herself actually we talk more about the honesty going through it she you know she's not out to sort of rewrite her history or she'll tell you what she thought at the time and she'll tell you why she no longer thinks that so she'll actually kind of in hindsight be honest and go you know I thought this that maybe wasn't so great but you know that is how I reacted or there's a bit she was going out with Johnny Thunders for a little while from New York Dolls who oh, is pretty Johnny much oh, oh. Oh, Johnny I wasn't expecting that reaction. Cute old Johnny Thunders. <laughs> lovely, sweet lovely little, smackhead. Sweet little Johnny Thunders. <laughs> but she, you know, for all the things that she wore, she tells this story about how she had a sort of uh, cut-up T-shirt on and hadn't realised that her nipple was showing through a hole in the T-shirt. And she was so mortified she didn't speak to him for a fortnight. <laughs> So this is the woman who's gone round town wearing a tampon on her head. But you know, she's like, oh, that hole wasn't meant to be there, you know. So, <laughs> she's Accidental um... flashing. No. <laughs> well, in the second book, she gets so wrapped up in sort of, I mean, she looks absolutely incredible. She's 63, I believe, and she looks younger than me, and I'm a damn sight younger <laughs> <laughs> She looks absolutely stunning, but there's an entire chapter just on hair removal where she's just like, these are the things I do before I go on a date. And then she gets to the date and she's absolutely furious because the guy's made no effort whatsoever. Well, She's yes. almost got a shopping list. But um, she talks about things like erectile dysfunction in this book. She's had a hell of a bad reaction from a lot of men about this book. Oh, has she? Yeah, like oh, that's proper, proper angry. The ones so, who couldn't get it up. Sorry, I shouldn't. <laughs> well, more than likely. I mean, the, the reaction has been quite visceral. She said it's been a huge hostility, even from some reviewers. There was a, I can't remember who she... She did tell me who, who it was, but um, it's probably best I don't say. But he actually said when he interviewed her, I've taken this book personally. It's made me personally really angry. It feels like an affront. So there's something wonderful about the fact that her honesty is actually seems really like getting... a very odd attitude for a reviewer <laughs> to have. This is written just for me, and well, I will react to it. People get like that about music, don't they? This song is all about me, and, yeah. you know. Her books do go all over absolutely everything. I mean, miscarriage, abortion, cervical cancer, 11 IVF rounds, divorce, yeah, erectile dysfunction, bad dating, those things are not unrelated. <laughs> She's on a... A voyage of self-discovery, but it's also self-exposure. I mean, she even says things like, you know, anyone who fancies me, skip this bit. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's all out there, and it's sort of how she feels about her daughter, how she feels about her mother. There's a, 
scenes with her sister that I can't really, otherwise it's a spoiler, talk about at any great length. But while her mother's dying, she talks about all of the arguments she has with her sister and how ugly they are. You know, it's what she calls genital warts and all. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done, Viv. Went yes. way with a phrase there. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what drew me to Close Music Boys and makes me want to read this, this, the follow-up, is that raw honesty mm. that she just puts it out there and there's so much self-awareness that causes her this embarrassment yeah and i think we can all relate to that maybe it's what we don't want to be but i think we've all been there yeah she says sometimes it's really ugly but it's good that it's ugly because you know she was right to fight for it all there's lots of scenes in the second book like fights she gets in buses and um sort of getting angry stealing a phone off a guy and just the furious rows that she's had with people there's a lot of drink throwing <laughs> and there's a lot of self-analysis that goes with that you know she she actually goes down a little bit of a rabbit hole like why do I throw drinks over people <laughs> and she's decided it's because she wants to make a point but she doesn't actually want it to get to fisticuffs so that's the sort of female reaction way yeah. that she's learned from punk days sort of like I want to shock but I don't want to get punched in the face yeah the slits were incredibly provocative Ari I mean Ari's sort of different kettle of fish really Viv is a bundle of nerves and anger and Ari was kind of the opposite even though she's actually much more out there she kind of come from a boarding school background and hadn't really Viv's from a very working class background a broken marriage and actually Viv does say at one point which I think is a brilliant point that they were the first generation of sort of 1950s couples divorces so they were the first generation that thought love was a con you know so you've got an entire generation of kids that are just like this is just all of it is a farce so it's no surprise that punk came out of those sort of ashes of course not no i mean there are so many things about the time that made total sense where was i going with this i've got oh ari Ari, you know, she uh, she had posters of horses and stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, Nora, her mother is a very well-off uh, lady. She's married to John Lydon now, actually, but uh, older than the rest of them, much more of a sort of maternal figure. But Ari was almost so nurtured that she had nothing to rebel against. So her boundaries were off the scale it was the opposite of sort of being posh she was sort of like she she would go on stage uh, once she had started her appearance with like cotton wool but sticking out of her knickers and she would take a piss on stage if she needed one she just it wasn't rebellion she just absolutely didn't even consider what she was doing yeah <laughs> it yeah. was it was kind of almost the opposite she was just so free that um it was yeah it, it wasn't that she was uh kicking against anything she was just being herself so she was, yeah, She, I thought Ari was kind of wonderful. Sadly, no longer with us. I know. Another thing that Viv sort of talks about, actually, that, you know, their, their friendship that kind of goes off the boil over the years, but um, which is very honest, really, when someone's died to sort of say, do you know what, we weren't so close at the end. and It's hard, isn't it? I think we have romantic relationships that break up and we kind of, they hurt, but you get used to that pain. But friendships breaking up, I think, are things that we don't really talk about. It. And yeah. You keep people around for longer than is be- is good for both of you. Yeah. Because it feels awful to just stop a friendship. Yes. It feels almost harder than like leaving a romantic relationship. Yeah. Well, she talks because she talks about her relationship with men and women at great length. She does actually say that for every man she's lost, you know, 
it might mean something at the time or whatever, but every woman she's lost has left a massive hole and it's much more significant to her. And she, she, this self-analysis, she sort of... When, when the slits were up and coming, she didn't have anyone to look to. You know, she had no heroes. She basically sort of says that she loved who the Beatles were seeing because all of the Beatles would date women with quite strong looks and quite strong opinions and that was sort of unheard of so they became heroes the Beatles girlfriends just because you know the, the Stones were going out with supermodels yeah. whereas you've got John Lennon with Yoko or whatever and that was quite inspiring Viv was sort of saying that to be a guitarist and female was a bit like saying I want to be an astronaut it was that out there <laughs> so she wanted boys to come and see the band because she wanted boys to aspire to be them so her sort of slight obsession with being around boys and bands, she wanted to be their icon. And her heroes became the girls she knew. You know, they, they weren't pop stars or whatever. They, they became the women in her life. She absolutely worships her daughter. And it's, it's a kind of a beautiful thing the way she talks about her daughter, Vida. There's a lovely little bit, actually, where she talks about her mum went through a stage of giving Vida a pound for every time she did something daring. So never mind failures, never mind successes. If you're feeling self-conscious or, you know, you just want to try something, this is when you get rewarded. What a great idea. <laughs> and I it mean, was... it sounds like it could end up in A&E. <laughs> I'm still on board. It probably did as well. But, but And it was at an age where, you know, girls are particularly self-conscious. And, you know, so that was her encouragement. Her mum sounded fantastic, actually, really did. The second book is much more emotional and about three generations of women. There's just lots of lovely things in there, like after her mother dies, the Christmas tree falls over. I think it is actually Christmas Day or it might be Christmas Eve. It's a very poignant sort of little Dickensian scene and all the glass baubles break and everything. And her daughter, Vida, is upstairs. I think she's probably teenage by this point. And Viv has that sort of pang of like, oh, you know, I'd normally get my mother. And then she's about to go and rush for her daughter. And she's like, do you know what? I'm an adult now. I can do this. As a woman in her, you know, I think she's probably at her late 50s at that point, to actually kind of go, oh, you know, I'm an orphan. I need to pick up the Christmas tree by myself. You yeah. know, there is that vulnerability of you never don't feel like an orphan just because you're of a certain age or, you know. So... Yeah, and there's a sort of lovely circularness to it as well, where Viv now goes to see her daughter play bass in her band. And <laughs> yeah, uh, she actually says, Oh, I hope my mother haunts me, and then realizes that maybe she should leave her alone for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems like the perfect place to end it. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us about such an interesting character. Oh, thank you for having me. I, ho- I hope if anyone uh, reads it, they let me know what they think. Yeah, you can tweet Liz at Liz underscore Buckley. That's right, yes. I am speaking to author Kit Duvall, who has recently published The Trick to Time. The Trick to Time is a tale of grief, longing and a love that lasts a lifetime. So, Kit, thanks very much for chatting to us. Do you want to tell me a bit more about what the book is about? Sure. It's essentially a story about Mona, who, when the book opens, is uh, three days short of her 60th birthday. And it's really about her deciding at this point in her life that something needs to change about her life. She spent a long, long time living without love. She fell in love when she was 19 with an Irish guy. She's an Irish woman herself, which came to Birmingham in the 70s. Fell in love. Um, That had a very unhappy ending after a few years. And she's lived without love all that time. And she just reaches this point in her life where she says, no, there's a lot of life left to live and I want to be happy I want I want to change the way I've been living and she decides to do something about it 
But in doing something about it, we learn the other things that she does with her life, which is that, you know, she makes dolls, sort of heirloom dolls for people, and she makes clothes for the dolls. But she also helps women grieve the loss of a stillborn baby. And it's it's that sort of caring nature of Mona, together with the fact that she wants to be happy, which is really the theme of the book. What made you want to write the book? Nothing made me want to write that particular subject. I always start with a character. And once I have the character, um, it's really literally about telling their story. I mean, there were certain things I did want to do, which is, you know, I, I'm Irish as well as being British and Caribbean. And uh, I really wanted to tell the story of what it was like to be Irish in the 70s, to come over to England and and how that affects you and what it was like to be Irish in the 70s when there was a lot of anti-Irish sentiment, very much as there is a lot of sort of anti-Islam sentiment now. There's a lot of anti-Irish sentiment in the 70s and 80s when the IRA bombing campaign was enticed. And, you know, I wanted to sort of incorporate that in a very sort of light, sort of background way to the story. It doesn't feature particularly in the story, but I did want to have that sort of backdrop to what was going on in Mona's personal life. And, of course, I do remember being Irish, what it was like to have people talk in front of me. And obviously, I'm mixed race, so, you know, I'm a brown-skinned woman. People never think I'm going to be Irish. So people would talk about the Irish in front of me assuming that I wasn't going to be Irish. So I would hear what people really thought about Irish people without them ever assuming that I might be one of the people that they're talking about. And the book has been long-listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction, right? How did you feel when you when you found out about that? Shocked, really, because I had no idea it had been entered for the prize no idea at all and it wasn't out it wasn't actually published when it was long listed you know it's sort of a highlight of my career you actually didn't start writing until your your mid-40s yeah i was about 45 46 i was bored basically i was at home with a young baby and a five-year-old girl and I am not the mother and baby group type person. Okay. It's just not my thing. I, I love my children to distraction, but I can't do that whole potato stamping, you know, let's make models. Not my thing. Well, I went to the mother and baby groups, but, you know, people were sort of talking about cracked nipples and stitches and stretch marks. And I was like, fucking hell. <laughs> okay, well, I can't do that shit. So I was at home literally plumping the cushions for the 50th time thinking there has got to be more than like because I'd given up my job and I decided to have a go at writing you know I mean literally just I didn't think I could do it but I thought well I'll I'll try and I was rubbish you know I didn't sort of put pen to paper and hey you know the new genius has arrived it was bad it was very very bad writing um I persevered, I uh, read a lot more, I read about writing, I learnt the craft, and I got better. But yeah, the, the first things that I wrote were absolutely appalling. See, I'm a journalist and, and I've written for a while and I used to write when I was a child. Actually, I got back into it by writing a blog and I remember like revisiting the blog that I wrote, which was only a few years ago, but reading it now, yeah, I'm like... Oh, that was shit. Oh, it's cringeful. So <laughs> bad. And the thing is, what what I find, and maybe it's, you know, complete arrogance, I thought I was going to be good. You know, I, I didn't start thinking, well, I'm going to be rubbish to begin with. I thought, oh, no, 
you know, I've read hundreds of books and I'll just be able to to write. You know, I was really shocked to find that my talent didn't match my ambition and my talent didn't, I couldn't get, you know, I had this beautiful vision and, you know, I'd write something down at nine o'clock at night and think, well, I've nailed that scene. I'd read it in the cold light of day the next day and just be so ashamed at how bad it read. It was good, you know, it's both humbling and deserved because you don't, well, maybe some people do. I was never going to be able to just sit down and write a masterpiece without a great deal of time, effort and, and putting the hours in. And I think good writers put the hours in. I'm quite interested in some of the work you've been doing in terms of encouraging diversity in the arts. So I see that you have started a creative writing scholarship fund in your name and also that you have crowdfunded an anthology of working class writers. So what inspired you to, to do that? To be honest, I didn't know it was going to be as big a drive, if you like. I didn't think it was going to be as, as, as important as it is. I mean, when I first started to write and to, and to meet other writers and work in publishing, I realised that there weren't a lot of people from my background being published or working in the industry. I used to read a lot of the classics. A lot of these books, the subject matter might be working class people, but these were middle class writers filtering the working class experience through their own lives. Mm. I suppose I just felt this isn't right. I love the classics. They're beautiful. They are fantastic. They are my favourite pieces of literature. But there are other stories, there are other lives, there are other ways of looking at the world. And I just think, let's keep all the great classics and all the great, writers that come from middle class or upper class background but let's also hear what other people have to say about their own lives or what would it be like if a working class writer wrote about Anne or a working class writer wrote Pride and Prejudice. There's a different way of looking at the world depending on your life experience and I feel very strongly that especially now with the world in such turmoil with the emergence of the far right with the polarisation in communities. There's never been a more important time for people to live other lives and hear other lives and be aware of the person that lives next door or down the road or across the water in Syria. I really believe that let those people have the opportunity to speak. You know, we're always, all of us are going to populate our worlds with the things we find comfortable usually. But at least Let's have the opportunity that if we wanted to go and buy a book written by somebody that lives in Doncaster talking about working in a zero-hours contract, let's have the opportunity to read that if we want it. And most importantly, let that writer have the opportunity to write and be taken seriously about her life experience. The crowdfunded book is going to be great. When I approached lots of writers that I knew to, to be involved in the anthology, they're yeah, really, really well-known writers from working-class backgrounds. They were so keen to be involved. I could have done two anthologies. You know, I could have had twice the number of people. Hopefully, as well, I will do it again. And then 17 unknown working-class writers. The book will be published next year, around May. And I've read some of the work that comes in. But, I mean, it's really good. Really exciting, different, new voices about different lives. Um, and hopefully it's the sort of thing that we might get the opportunity to repeat because once I have got the 17 
well-known writers. I had at least another 10 inquiries from other writers that I didn't even know were working class. Are you able to tell us any names that are involved in the anthology? Uh, Mallory Blackman, who was the Children's Laureate. Louise Doughty, who wrote Apple Tree Yard. Damien Barr, who wrote Maggie and Me and who runs a perhaps the best-known literary salon in London. MJ Highland, who writes Cathy Rensenbrink, whose book was shortlisted for the Welcome Prize, I think, last year. Lots of others. I mean, the 17. I read an article that you wrote for The Guardian about about working-class writers, or, or I guess more broadly about diversity in in the arts yeah. and in literature. And you say that not a lot has changed since your childhood in terms of that diversity. What do you think the key is to get the progression that we undoubtedly need to see? For every generation to fight the fight, really, I think I know that when I started working in social services and I was looking at uh, training foster carers to look after white foster carers to look after black children. And I remember working with these foster carers and talking about general hair care and skin care for African Caribbean children. And then if you have a, a, a if you're looking after a Muslim child, what you might need to think about in terms of, sort of what they eat and, and where they might need to pray. And I'm talking about 25 years ago. About three months ago, there was a report, an article in The Guardian about it, about how foster carers need training on blah, 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 blah. And it was identical, identical to what I was saying 25 years ago. Nothing's changed. And I think the answer is that we need all of us to be constantly reminded about difference and what that means. And whilst we might have definitely, and we have made massive progress in lots of areas, we have made progress on in race, we have made progress with women's rights and and that area of inclusion. But we are not doing so well on ability and disability. We now have the question of accepting and understanding the issues around transgendered people. And there will always be the next area of inequality to attack and to overcome. While still looking at the old arguments and the old areas of race and of gender and sexuality. So I think we don't give up. I don't think there's a magic pill, magic sentence, magic publication, magic person. This is chipping away centimetre by centimetre at an enormous pyramid to bring it down. And it might take us 100 years. Um, I hope it doesn't, but I think it we have to be strong, we have to be determined. And we also have to do it with good grace because I don't believe that there are many people that hate their neighbour. There's just lots of people that don't know their neighbour and don't consider their neighbour and don't think about it. So it, as much as it's changing people's hearts and minds, it's also about doing it with compassion and understanding and tolerance for people's ignorance and people's lack of knowledge. So, you know, not attacking people, but attacking wrong thinking and attacking prejudice and attacking exclusion without ever unnecessarily attacking people. All of us, every single person on the planet has some kind of prejudice and is guilty of stereotyping on some level, even if it's 
old, old people are like this, children are like that, the French are like this. You know, everyone does it all the time. So we shouldn't point, be too eager to point the finger at other people. If we look at it in the right way, we kind of have a unique opportunity at this moment in history to really address some of these things. Because if you think about Brexit, for example, and, you know, Trump over in the US, and, and this has exposed a lot of other prejudices aside from, you know, the obvious. I think the, the middle classes, myself included, kind of like to think that we're not part of this problem, that, you know, it's just that daft yeah. racist person down the road who who, who voted for whatever, but yeah. actually it's exposed a lot of educated middle-class people's prejudices about, you know, about the working classes, about the elderly, about... Totally, yeah, exactly. And, and in, in looking at other people's prejudices, we always, always need to look at our own. Where, even when I'm talking about the working classes, I talk about middle-class people. Well... You know, middle-class people, that's an enormous swathe of, of population, an enormous variance, you know, within that class. And not all middle-class people think like that and behave like that and have those views. We don't want to stereotype middle-class people in the same way that middle-class people might stereotype the working class. It's more the structure and less the people, and we must be very careful about not attacking people, but attacking institutions and uh, systems and processes. And that's what we need to bring down. Where can the Standard Issue listeners find you on social media? Well, I've got a website, which is kitdeval.com, and I'm on Twitter at, at kitdeval. Thank you so much, Kit. Great, thanks for talking. Hi, Hannah here. A couple of weeks ago, Mick and I went to the Houses of Parliament to meet MP Caroline Flint and talk to her about, well, loads of stuff, actually, loads of great stuff. We talked about the Blair Babes, about Mo Molum, about Brexit, about women in Parliament, about the current mood in Parliament, about Theresa May, all sorts of stuff. That will be going up as our Sunday chops, that full interview. But in the meanwhile, here's just a little clip when I took the opportunity to ask Caroline about something that was close to my heart. You and I share something in common, that we are both the children of an alcoholic. Mm. So let's go from Europe to that depressing yeah. subject. <laughs> I need a drink, guys. <laughs> and you have spoken before about... Yeah, I yeah. think it's... For, for me, what I, mm. I, I find mm. interesting about it is mm. that there is a risk amongst children of alcoholics that, you know, there is a mm. path that you can go down. Yeah. But also... I know lots of people who are children of alcoholics who mm-hmm. have gone on to lead very successful yeah. non-alcohol-centric lives, yeah, like yourself, yeah. like myself. Your colleague John Ashworth yeah, gave a great yeah. speech in Parliament about his dad and alcoholism. Mm. You have some support for some charities in that area. Yeah, that yeah. Area. There's NACOA, it's the National Association yeah. of Children of Alcoholics. And what's been really great, I mean, uh, uh, Jonathan Ashworth, um, Liam Byrne, Myself, we all share this in terms of our family background. But there are others, again, across party yeah. too. And one of our asks, we did when we sort of produced our, our manifesto um, a year or so ago, was to get more support for funding for um, a phone line for children to ring up. I mean, interestingly, actually, from what I understand, you know, I'm a child of alcoholic, you're a child of alcoholic, but actually it's not just children ringing up, it's actually adults who are children yeah. of alcoholics who 
still have to feel there's a lot of things difficult to deal with so we're really pleased that there's support there but the other aspect of this was to try and in amongst all the things I know that health covers is to try and find a bit of space to get some data and evidence on what is the extent of the problem I mean you know how many families are affected by this so you can better understand and therefore better be able to think about well what sort of services should we be doing I mean it's I quite tricky data to get it is tr- it is tricky and I don't think it's going to ever be perfect because not everybody comes along and says hey People I'm, don't I, talk about I, I don't talk about it but there are some points in which it seems to me you could collect some data but it's whether people are actually asking that question yeah, let me give you an example about this you know for too long when women were turning up at their GP with injuries or turning up in hospital, nobody was asking about, obviously in a, in a sensitive way, whether there was any domestic violence involved. And those missed opportunities, and partly because I totally get it, health professionals and others worried about asking those questions, weren't sure how to do it. Also, there's but, been a, a long tradition of what happens in the home oh, like yeah. the police would be like oh no yeah. it's oh, a yeah. domestic there's, there's loads of it you yeah. know and nobody really capturing any of those so an incident but it not being captured and I think we've done quite a lot of work good work over the years to sort of get that conversation about why this is important but also obviously provide the training support for staff to feel they can do this in a way that is sensitive it's a bit the same in terms of children in this I mean actually on the domestic violence there's a few cases over the years as an MP I've become aware of in Doncaster where police were going out to people ringing up about noise next door and things like this and children being taken into care and I have to say some really difficult issues but nobody really, when those children were violent nobody really tagging that they'd been brought up in a violent home and therefore the connections, the dots hadn't been dotted the T's weren't crossed so I think, you know, alcohol is one other one of the things and again, obviously with alcohol, one of the difficulties is there's drugs illegal drugs and and where that sits alongside alcohol now without getting whole into whole drug debate if it's illegal people know that's illegal and actually a lot of our services are prepared to ask questions about that but when there's alcohol because it's not illegal mm. and i'm not saying it should be illegal people don't want to ask about yeah. it they just say oh he just goes out every friday saturday night or this sort of thing and and children are brought up in this sort of atmosphere as well they think it's normal too so it's very hard but I know that my own authority, working with others, has begun to do some work where they've got other things they're working with families. They are saying to families, trying to be more open about alcohol and talking about it so it doesn't just get left. And I think if we don't talk about it and try and identify it, even though it won't be perfect, we'll never try to deal with it. I was involved with an Institute of Alcohol Studies on some work they did last year where they actually interviewed children and parents. And this wasn't about alcoholics, this was just about drinking that could lead to dependency. And what was really interesting is obviously they spoke to the children and the adults separately. The adults thought their kids had no idea how much they drank. And I'm not talking about alcoholics here, you know. But when they interviewed the children, the children were sort of 6 to 15 or whatever. The children were so totally aware of it. They absolutely knew it. And the the children were saying things like, oh, yeah, every Friday, you know, mum and dad have a drink. And Saturday mornings, I bring a glass of water to mum because she's not feeling very well and all this. And it was really interesting. It's a little radar. They totally know it. They're sponges. They just absorb all this in. Some of the sort of things the children were saying about 
I know when mum or dad or mama and dad have had a drink, they c- there's lots more arguments with each other, yeah. but also snappy with the kids and things like that. And this is, this was, as I say, this was some research that was not about alcoholism. This was just about where drinking, as we know, can yeah. change your mood and can sometimes make you very happy, but it can sometimes make you very sad yeah. on these things. So I think it's a, it's a really important area because since I've spoken about it, Liam, Jonathan, lots of other people as well, the number of people who, who've got in touch and are, you know, it's not, they're not all the same stories as you were saying. Yeah. Some people tragically, even with siblings and with family, can yeah. be different. We know that I think it's twice as likely to become an alcoholic yourself, suicide, other things too, failure at school. And then for some others, I mean, we all have our own baggage, you know, with this sort of thing. You sort of try to find a way out of it. I mean, I describe going to university as not as a de- my destiny, my escape. I just thought, if I can get these O-levels, as they were then, um, <laughs> get my A-levels. I didn't have a clue about... And nobody in my family had been to university before, so I wasn't you know, really sure about where to go and things like this. That's another one of the things, though, if I knew then what I know now. But anyway, but I just thought, if I could just get to university, I'd be away from home, and I might have some more choices. And it was yeah. that was as basic as that. It wasn't as worked out about what I would do or then, that was it. But I have to say, and I've talked about this before... It wasn't without its guilt because, you know, I had a brother and sister still at home. These were the days before <laughs> the penny farthing. No, these are the days before, <laughs> these are the days before, obviously, mobile phones. Yeah. And I used to do, uh, I think I've still got it, it's called Nightline, it's like a counselling service. And basically you would you'd be, do your training for counselling and then you'd be there in night so if any student was feeling depressed they could ring up and this sort of thing. I did that because obviously I wanted to support that service. But actually, also there was a there was a phone in the room, and I used to arrange with my sister to ring me up when I was on my rotor, just to check on what yeah. was going at home to find out. You know, obviously I'd not be talking to my sister and my brother all the time because obviously yeah. other students were trying to get through. Yeah. But I would just have like ten minutes, and I just let her know Friday night I'm doing Nightline. I'll be there between ten o'clock at night and three in the morning. Ring if you ring me at eleven, and usually because you did it in pairs, uh, the other person I was with, I just said, "Do you mind if I just take a call from home?" These things are, you know, still there, and often, you know, the services aimed at anyone with a dependency, drugs or alcohol, illegal drugs or or drugs they've just got addicted to, painkillers and what have you. It's absolutely right that there should be services for those people, but they aren't. These people aren't isolated. They're within some sort of grouping yeah. of a family in, in different ways, and children are really important to that. And there are some there are some great services out there, but there aren't enough of them basically. And people don't talk about it, and at least people are talking about it. No, I mean they they really don't. I mean, in fact, even I just mean, how like, did you find? What, how just, did you what you had? What did you find as your roots to deal with it? I always had a thing where I kind of separated my dad into two people, as mm, in he was mm, my dad, mm, who was lovely and mm, funny and smart mm, and everything, yeah. and then sometimes he was drunk, and <laughs> you kind of had to try and keep it separate yeah, in yeah. your brain. Yeah. But been, been through periods of not drinking at all. Mm. I've been through periods of drinking really heavily. Um, mm. I don't think either of them work. Mm. I think uh, the only way, and I wouldn't necessarily say it's the way forward, but the only way is that I feel like I maintain a healthy fear of alcohol. And yeah. I've never been quite comfortable around it. I, it's there and yeah. I'm aware that it is, to yeah. me, as dangerous as, or as poten- has the potential to cause as mm. much danger to mm. people's lives as heroin. It's and so you should keep them. You it, should keep them yeah. 
keep that in mind. Yeah. The one rule I've always had is I never drink alone. I think that that's it. That, absolutely that. In fact, it, people come into my house. I drink a lot. I like I like whiskey. I don't drink a lot of whiskey. I like whiskey. People come into my house and they'll see ten bottles of whiskey there because people have bought me it. And they'll say, "Wow, you drink a lot." And I'm like, "No, the very fact that it's there indicates I don't drink I know, very much because I, I will never drink by myself." Yeah, and I think it's that it is that th- it's, you know thing about drinking alone. I yeah. want it to be a social thing. Yeah. Not something because I just think it's just therein lies the danger in it, and I think that's partly obviously my mum, and that's the interesting thing about your mum, alcoholic fathers, and I that's think, I think interesting. Diff- I think it is different. Uh, I think yeah. you get different things from them, so, and there's yeah. different things going on. Yeah. But I think you know it's that, as I say, looking as a child or as a teenager later on, you know, mum drinking on her own, and then hiding bottles like you'd find one in the laundry basket i do seem to recall as well one time um she wasn't actually a big spirit it wasn't spirit smoke but i do remember a time there was some whiskey bottle and you know it was one of those things again where you promised she hadn't she wasn't drinking at that point or what have you and we'd marked up this this all sounds terribly familiar (laughs) marked up up the whiskey bottle and it wasn't going down i was thinking is that real and then I sort of like went and just checked it and actually it was cold tea yeah <laughs> there is a bit of a sort of gallows humour about some of this sometimes there's oh, been definitely. some horrendous points which is really sad and really depressing and you know my mum was a lovely woman yeah. and kind you know she really was but I think suffered a massively at a point in her life where drinking took hold of low self esteem and there were some very difficult times but honestly sometimes there were some I mean, it was like high comedy sometimes. Some of the, it really was, and the sort of cat and mouse games going on, and things like yeah. this, and and bizarre. And the other thing, I think, you're as a child, you're very hyper. That, well, you're not. It's not even hypersensitive. You know, to some people outside, people may not realise yeah. that this person is drunk, but you are so acutely yeah. aware of how much has gone on, and yeah. you're just waiting for something to happen. And yeah, yeah it's. Um, Yes, it's a very complex area, and I just, yeah, I just hope some of the the somewhat open discussion that's happening, and you know, people coming out like the Archbishop of Canterbury about his experience. I think with both his father yeah. and mother and others, you know, allows people feel they're not on their own and more confident about talking about these things. But at the end of the day, once we've all been talking, we do need some better services to yeah. be able to get to, to help the adults, but also help the kids. It's tricky, isn't it? Because it's mm. it's a very cultural thing to do in Britain. You've had a mm. shit day, have a drink. Mm. You've had a great day, yeah. have a it drink. It is one of the You've few things day. that is both. Have a drink. Yeah. It's, it, it, yeah. is, it is an upper and a downer. Mm. More people use it as an upper and a downer. I've always, yeah. I mean, and it's what, something you're taught to look forward to, yeah. your first yes. drink. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. and it's awful. Yeah. Like, when you first start drinking alcohol, it tastes disgusting. But it's one of those <laughs> things that we power through <laughs> until you find one that suits yeah. you or you just get used to the fact it makes you yeah. want to get. It is all around and we have a, I mean I know there was a sort of thing wasn't there about oh we can create this cafe culture well that seems to be well we'll just drink throughout the whole day <laughs> you know, into the evening so yeah. I think people thought yeah we'll have the cafe culture with a drink with and we'll wine. have the nighttime culture oh, with a drink I read something yeah. recently where obviously there's now a raft of low alcoholic yeah. wines and beers and they're kind of being marketed as you know you could get that as your drink to have with your sandwich as opposed to to cut down just beers. have a cup of tea just have a bit more yeah. during the day. Yeah. yeah. That is weird. Yeah. I do. I was listening to something on the radio the other day, actually. It's, it's down in, um, I think, Shoreditch. Obviously, it's got to be Shoreditch, <laughs> yeah. hasn't it? There's like a non-alcoholic brewery or something. And so they've got this bar. <laughs> 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 I 
Charlie faces like well, me. Well, why would you drink it? It's not going to get you drunk. Right, they were talking about this, and they're saying, oh, no, it's, you know, people really want this. And I think they've got a vegan restaurant there. Yeah. Nothing against vegans who are listening, and nothing against that. But it was like, you know, the stereotype, yeah. it's Shoreditch. The men have got long beards, and, and it's vegan. And now we've got the non-alcoholic brewery. But actually, it was interesting. Someone said, someone not involved of the brewery said, he said, well, if it's not like any alcohol, why does it cost more? Yeah. <laughs> and it was sort of like, why is it, you know, why are those always so much more expensive? You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we go in hard with a two-footed tackle on the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sports. First up, we're sending our congratulations to, um, yeah, Chelsea, it's hard to say, Chelsea ladies football team who beat Arsenal women, which is even harder to say as a non-partisan North Londoner, in the SSE Women's FA Cup final last weekend, which actually, by the time you hear this, It was the weekend before that, but we were on island duty last week. And just a little reminder, you should listen to that if you haven't already. Anyway, Chelsea's 3-1 victory at Wembley Stadium came thanks to Ramona Bachman, who scored a brace, and Frank Kirby, who is this year's Professional Footballers Association Women's Player of the Year. Arsenal's goal came from Viviane Medema. However, it was Kirby who received the bulk of the plaudits and she was watched by a crowd of over 45,000 people, which is up by more than 10,000 from last year's then record-breaking crowd. So obviously that's the new record. It was Chelsea's second FA Cup title, but for midfielder and England international Katie Chapman, it was her 10th. That's actually more than Arsene Wenger. It was subsequently announced that the 35-year-old that's Chapman, not Wenger, FYI, will retire from football this summer. And that is even harder to say because she's the same age as me. So that's it, guys. My professional footballing career might actually be over now. Um, What a career she's had, though. She is one of the pioneers who's grown this game, and although she may not have benefited so much from that herself, only towards the end of her career when, you know, Chelsea brought in a fully professional team, for example... She's blazed a trail for the next generation who I think are going to see really big happens. Really big happens? Who uh, who I think are going to see really big things happen in this game. We wish Chapman the very best in whatever she goes on to do next. Something to look forward to this coming weekend as Nicola Adams takes on Argentina's... Now, I literally... Soledad del Valle Frias... Fuck knows how you say that. Apologies, I'm from Essex, aren't I? That's happening on Saturday. The 35-year-old, see, I could still have a pro boxing career, couldn't I? She'll be fighting at Elland Road in Leeds and it will be her fourth professional bout. She's won all three of her previous bouts twice by KO. Nicola has recently switched trainer. Um, but she appears to be fairly unfazed by it and hopes that this is going to be her final fight before having a crack at the super flyweight world title. I'm a big fan of Adams and I very much hope to watch this. It should be good. Finally, I'm having a go at some sport myself. I'm taking part in Ride London at the end of July and that's 100 miles 
by bicycle, that is, uh, me and Beyonce back in action. Um, 100 miles across the urban sprawl of London and some big hills in Surrey. So I have done it twice before, and I might have mentioned once or twice that I cycled across the US of A. I might have mentioned it, you know, just once or twice. But that was a couple of years ago, and now I've got a dodgy knee, a dodgy hip, there's all sorts of things wrong with me, and as previously discussed, I'm already too old to be a professional footballer. I'm riding for the Samaritans, which is an excellent charity, which I have a personal connection to, and one which we discussed in relation to male suicide in today's Bush Telegraph. And I would like your money if you have a couple of quid to spare, and that will be to help support the excellent, excellent work that the Samaritans do, providing help to people in emotional distress or at the risk of suicide. And you can find my donations page, should you wish to, at uk.virginmoneygiving.com forward slash inspiragen. And the link is pinned to the top of my Twitter feed, which is also at inspiragen. Oh, go on. That's all for me for now, and I will be back next week with more sports things for your very lucky ears. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? Did an old one. It's been a while since we've done an old one. An old one. An old one. <laughs> um, this week I watched 1970s. Well, the, that is old. Yeah, The Aristocats. Wow. It was a critical success and a box office success. In fact, it was the UK's top film in 1971. And that's not as impressive as the fact it was the second top film in France in 1971 which I'm genuinely surprised about. I can only assume that French people went to watch it to just laugh at what Disney thinks France is like, because that's always good for a giggle. Is it the same as what Jen thinks France is like? (laughs) Yeah, I've actually been holding on to this one. It was actually one of the ones I really, really loved when I was little, and I kind of didn't want to put myself through not liking it, but also I kind of wanted to have something to look forward to when I had to watch things like Bolt. So, yeah, I was a little bit nervous about this one. Yeah, Utterly charmed by Bolt. Yeah. Did you guys see it? How have you? Or have you watched it again? Or I think I actually went to see it at the cinema, which is weird because I wasn't born in 1970. No, but they do, about every 10 years, they, they used to put old ones out again at the cinema. I think we did go and see it at the cinema and we are a cat family, uh, the Offords, and I remember loving it when I was a kid. That's an interesting point because I think what is unusual about the Aristocats and possibly why I liked it is it's one of the few Disney films in which cats aren't cunts. Yeah. I have seen it when I was little, seen it loads when I was little and loved it because I am very much into cats, not in a sexy way, but I really like cats. I like all animals, but cats are probably my favourite and I have cats, a, a cat. I was going to rewatch it, but I didn't get around to it and I'm really upset that I didn't because I'm now scared that it might be destroyed for me forever. So, Dunleavy, did you like it? Okay, so I actually had some company watching this this week, which is unusual. I watched was it, it with, Peggy and Joe. No, it wasn't. I watched it with my brother and my nephew. Oh. And the answer was, I thought it was okay. Mm. My nephew thought it was okay. And my brother said, that was shit. <laughs> um, oh, he's so succinct. <laughs> we are a tough crowd. It opens with a cat riding on the, the head of a horse, which probably is a cute thing, but... As you recall, the three of us saw a cat sitting on a donkey. Shall I do a little thing about the plot? Tell us what happens. 
Okay, so it opens with a Morris Chevalier song. That's how you know it's French. Some of which is sung in French. And we did have a bit of fun trying to work out which was which of the words he was singing were furball. Um, <laughs> so there's these three little kittens. Jen looks confused already. Trois chats. <laughs> or three kitlings. Chatettes. And their and their mum, who is a white cat, who inexplicably also has a white patch on her stomach. How what? you get a white cat with a white patch? I don't know. How racist right. does Disney right. want to be? They Just live, ultra white. Well, it's funny you should say yeah, that because that, there are... We? Oh. Moving onwards. They live in this mansion in Paris with their owner, who is a single woman draining the state, obviously. <laughs> Jesus, women, just find yeah. yourself a man. And she calls her solicitor over because she wants to write her will. And overhearing this is her butler, who is British. In fact, we'll get to how weird the selection of people in this are, but he's British. And like all men in this, appears to have rickets. Um Anyway, he overhears this plan about how she's going to leave all her money in the will to the cats, and then when they're gone, mm. he'll get it. And, of course, he thinks this is a stupid idea. Now, just as a... I also, as an adult, think it probably is a stupid idea to leave all your fortune to your cats. Yeah. What are they going to do with it? Well, I mean, I understand that you might say, you know, I don't want to, to go, and then my, my relatives go, I don't want them, I haven't put down. So you might leave some money to make sure that someone looked after them. But, yeah, your entire mansion and... I, I don't know. No, Clarky Cat can't even be trusted if I accidentally forget to shut the kitchen door. It's carnage. Precisely. Anyway, so the butler decides what he's going to do is going to get rid of the cats. So he drives them off to the countryside and dumps them because then he's going to go back and say, oh, what's happened? They've run away. This is where it starts to get confusing because he's British. The cats appear to be American. Mm-hmm. They're in France, and what he's really concerned about is that he's going to get all of the dollars in fact, he even gets little dollar signs in his eyes, which is... Culturally confusing. It is somewhat culturally confusing. There's also some dogs later who appear to be from the Deep South. It's very strange. Anyway, so the ki- the kittens get abandoned, basically. They fall in a river. They're in a basket, you know, like Moses. And he, like, goes back to Paris. And they all don't know what to do. And I have to say, Duchess, who's the mum cat in this, is fucking useless in this scenario. She just, at one point, she says, oh, it just looks hopeless to her kids. <laughs> My brother was like, come on, at least try and make a fun out of it. Don't say to the kids, now we're fucked. We're probably going to starve to death now. Probably going to be attacked by other cats and just, we're fucked. I'm just thinking back to times when my mum and I would be driving around and she'd go around the same roundabout six times and I'd start to look a bit suspicious and she'd claim we were going on an adventure. And if she'd just gone, it's all starting to look a bit hopeless, yeah. Mick. Anyway, um, there's a, and then there's another bit which is quite entertaining, which is, uh, well, not entertaining, but just for the sake of argument, I'm going to tell you this, right, where he's trying to escape in his motorbike. He drives into a windmill and the entire windmill moves along. And at this point, my brother and my nephew and I all went, what the? <laughs> anyway, they're abandoned. And guess who turns up? Baloo from the Jungle Book. Absolutely. Thomas O'Malley. The character we all remember from the Aristocats, except Jen, who doesn't appear <laughs> no, to remember yeah. Thomas O'Malley. Thomas O'Malley, who was an alley cat, despite the fact that he lives oh, in yeah. the countryside where there are no alleys. <laughs> He's played by Phil Harris, who, as Mickey's correctly says, is blue and is also Little John in Robin Hood and does not play any of them any differently. I've come to the conclusion Phil Harris had one thing and he did it and Disney kept going, oh, I like that. Let's get him back in again. The cat necessities. Can you think about the cat necessities? So, 
almost immediately. I mean, the film's been unreasonably sexist up until this point, I have to say. Two little boy cats, one little girl cat. Little boy cats are all about, you know, being brave and the little girl cat's about being ladylike. And the Duchess in the situation is useless. Now, actually, to be fair, she's a house cat. I think some house cats probably would be useless in that situation. But Thomas O'Malley turns up, immediately starts calling her honey, mansplaining the fuck out of everything to her, talking over her. There's a really weird thing in which the little kitten appears to fancy him, which my brother just kept turning around and doing really massive eyes at me, like, what is this? This is weird. I don't know. I used to want Matthew Kelly to be my dad, and that was the kind of, like, crush. I think kids quite often, I think little girl kids quite often have crushes on. I think little boy kids do as well, actually. I think that's quite common. I'm not saying it's it's not common. What I'm saying is... The it's way weird. it appears in this film, it's a bit weird. No, we'll, I'll give you that, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, back in Paris, the owner is freaking out because she's woken up and her cats are missing. It. Um, just to be clear, if you're wondering what 1910 Paris looks like, right, in this film, it looks like 28 days later. There's just no fucker in it. <laughs> the entire place is absolutely abandoned. Did everyone die and leave it to their cats? Well, I did Google it. <laughs> Apparently there was a massive flood in Paris in 1910, and I'm actually wondering whether it, they all just got washed away. Incredible historical accuracy from Disney. <laughs> exactly. The butler starts bragging to a horse about that he's, <laughs> that he's got away with this, we'll as you there. do. And he shows her a front page of a newspaper that says, you know, catnapper steals cats and the police are all over it. And at that point I thought... Fucking hell, it's 1910, people. Kaiser Wilhelm is arming. And you're just fucking around looking for some cats. Does anyone shout, call Scotland Yard? No one does. The police? Yeah. The Rosus. Meanwhile, the cats are on a little journey trying to get home. There's a point at which they steal a, a, like a big urn or whatever you call jug of cream. And I thought, oh, that's a precursor to wicked diarrhoea. Oh, There's always the way with cats. They meet some of those ducks called geese that bite your trousers, which is great. <laughs> My nephew used to call geese, those ducks called geese that, that bite your trousers. They um, do, fuckers. Yeah. In fact, that, my brother sang that when they came on, was the biggest laugh this film got. That's an indication <laughs> of how funny it is. Eventually, they get to Paris and they go to see Scat Cat. I'm the Scat Cat. Is right. it a jazz singing cat? Played by Scatman Carruthers. This is the thing that everybody remembers from the Aristocats and they all start singing Everybody Wants to Be a Cat and yeah. almost immediately I got this massive swell of oh here it is yeah. this is the magic this is why I remember this this lasted approximately 15 seconds oh. I would say before up pops a Siamese cat oh here we go oh, hello. oh my god it all goes really badly wrong it's all of th- I mean I don't even need to go in about how racist Disney is toward Chinese people but yep you had the buck teeth I, I don't know I don't even want to say it other than it's just the usual classic Disney values Disney values <laughs> like honestly it's jaw dropping there's a bit of last minute drama where everybody's fucking around and some people nearly end up in Timbuktu and it all gets really stupid but I really lost interest in it after the Siamese cat incident it's just I just felt depressed and then of course they all live happily ever after in in the end which of course they don't because it's 1910 Paris and the fucking first world war's coming so they live happily ever after for four years do you think they went to the trenches though they probably didn't did they the cats yeah but see any cat statues for like animals that are decorated because of like stuff they've done in the war there is actually um, a, a horse one in yeah. London. To be honest, watching it, it and and I hadn't noticed it before, but it basically feels like a retread of Lady and the Tramp. It's like a posh bird meets a bit of rough, 
except there's kids in it this time. And then... And some racism. And some racism. And the bad guy gets his comeuppance and the good cats go... Um, it's based yeah. on a true story, though, about some cats that inherited a stately house. Is it? Seriously, that's my fact number one about the Aristocats. And fact number two is some of the scenes where the dogs are barking are literally just ripped from 101 Dalmatians. There you go. It's recycling. Whew, I'm done. Whew. What are we giving it? I'm going to give it two. Two what? I'm going to give it two ruined childhoods out of five. <laughs> That's all for this week's episode of the Standard Issue podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. We've had a lovely time, as indeed we always do, and we do hope that you have as well. There's more to come from us this week. If you enjoyed that interview with Caroline Flint, then you'll be able to hear the full shebang on Sunday, released as a Sunday Chops. And also, we'll be putting out a playlist relating to the theme of class. We'll be back next week with lots more interesting, lovely, wonderful, exciting things, including a podcast exchange chat with Deborah Jane Appleby of She of the Strong Female Leads podcast, who will be chatting to us about Comic-Con, amongst other things. Usually, around this time, I would be asking you to rate and review us on iTunes, please, if you don't mind. And also, you know, like, feel free to do that. We welcome this, but we would quite like it if you would vote for us, actually, in the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice category. What you need to do is you need to get yourself to www.britishpodcastawards.com and click on the tab Enter 2018 and then on Listener's Choice Award and then one day my very old laptop will load and I'll know what to do next. Okay, so what to do next is there is a field that says search for podcast and if you enter standard issue, then you can click on it and you just need to tell them your name, your email address and and that you love us. And that would be great. We'd really like that. Unfortunately, votes do close tomorrow on Thursday and if we'd understood that this was a thing... We'd have asked you to do it last week as well, but we didn't. So here we go. Um, Get out there and vote, please, for us, ideally. That would be nice. Thanks. Do you want to come and see us doing an actual real life show? Do, because uh, Londoners, we have spoiled you up until now, but we're taking a little break from London over the summer. So our May the 28th gig is the last show we're doing in London until September, guys. I know. It's a long time without us. So... Do have a look at our website and you will be able to see, or rather, look at Sarah's website, because it is hers, really. Um, uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. Have a look at that and you'll be able to see all of the gigs that we have coming up. Maze is absolutely cracking. We've got Marion Keys, the author. Gemma Whelan of Game of Thrones fame. Vicky McClure of, like, all of the things fame. And Katie Tunstall of the music fame. So it should be really, really good. We're really looking forward to it and hope to see lots of you there. You can follow us on Twitter, if you like, at Standard Issue UK. And you can follow us individually, if you want, as well. We talk about stuff. Uh, so Mickey is at Mixter Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And I, myself, am at Inspired Jen. We can also be found on Facebook and, indeed, Instagram. 
All that remains for me to say, oh, one more thing to say, always one more thing. All that remains for me to say, oh, is, as ever, stay frosty, champs. <laughs>